let's take our Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 7. And we'll be moving through the book fairly quickly now, about a chapter a week. Which, if my calculation is right, will put us into uh, May when we get finished, and then we'll go right into the Psalms for the summer. Revelation chapter 7. Thank you. And then after the summer, I don't know what we're going to do. I think maybe we'll do the Gospel of Matthew or something like that. I'm just thinking right now. So if you have any ideas, let me know. Okay, Revelation chapter 7. Now, for those of you who are visiting, uh, let me tell you what's happening so far in the book. John the Revelator has had a vision, and this vision is intended to do four things. The vision comes from Christ, and Christ is revealing four things to John. And the first is, he is in the vision. Uh, John is warning the people in the seven churches of Asia Minor, and to us as well, uh, to remain faithful to Christ. Because there's going to be a tendency, a temptation, to cave in because of the economic pressures that are coming upon the world at this time. And many of these people, in order to survive, are willing to bow the knee to Caesar. There are many cult groups in the Roman Empire where you can get free food if you will simply go there and, in doing so, make a libation, pour out an offering to one of the Roman gods or to Caesar himself. It would be very similar to our situation in America today. We're in the middle of a recession. Some people in this country have been out of work for over two years. You can imagine such a thing. With no income. Now they have no income. And imagine they are told that they can have a job. And they can feed their kids and their family. But they have to join this cult group. Whatever you just put in the name of the cult group. Because maybe the owner of that com company belongs to a group like that. And he says, but you have to join our cult. Now, here's the question. If you were in that situation, what would you do? If you don't have a job, your, your, your unemployment's run out. Your family's going to starve when somebody takes care of them. And here's a, a job laid right at your doorstep, but you have to start attending this cult group. What would you do? See, that's the temptation. So let's bring it right down to earth. In order to survive, these people are going to have to bow the knee to Caesar. And John writes that warns them to remain faithful to Christ no matter what the temptation. Now, second reason for the vision is to inform these people that if they remain faithful, they're going to be persecuted. And many of them are going to be put to death. Because Caesar does not like it when people don't bow to him or accept the Roman God. So they, many of them will be persecuted and some will be put to death for their faith. Third, these people are told in these first several chapters that if they remain faithful, they will receive eternal life. They will enter into the kingdom of God. But if you bow your knee to Caesar and you denounce Christ as Lord, you will not inherit eternal life. So, there's a promise. Remain faithful, even to the point of death, no matter what it costs you, and you'll have eternal life. And then the fourth thing is, the Roman Empire, and those people who oppress you, the persecutors, will one day be judged. And in the end, there will be justice. So that's what we're learning in these chapters. Okay? 
Now, last week, we saw that Christ takes a seal in his hand that contains these events that are going to come upon the earth, especially in the context of these seven churches, and he breaks six of those seals. Okay? So now we come to chapter 7. Now let's read chapter 7. Here's what it says. And after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now I want you to read that again to yourself. Just look at it to yourself. And hopefully you see that there's something a little strange there. Unless you belong to the Flat Earth Society. Anybody here belong to the Flat Earth Society? You believe the earth has four corners, and if you go too far you might fall off? Or you believe that the earth is round? Uh, hopefully you believe the earth is round. So what's going on here? Well, this is a vision. Visions are not to be taken what? Literally. They're symbolic. They represent something. Like when you have a dream at night, they don't make sense. And you try to make sense of them when you wake up. <clears throat> well, this is a vision of dream that takes place during the day, in a sense. And John, in the vision, sees the earth with four corners and four angels. So it means something. It has to be interpreted. Now look what it says. Those four angels were holding the four winds of the earth. Again, symbolic. That the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So, here's the scene in the vision. There are angels who come from every direction on planet Earth with the means within their hands to harm the Earth or to bring God's judgment upon the Earth. And they're from God. But there's another angel who says, um, don't do it yet. Don't do it yet. Because we have to do something. We have to seal the servants of God. Now remember, at the end of chapter 6 last week, remember how it ended? Look at verse 17. It talked about judgment. The verses 12 through 16, there was judgment that was going to come upon the Roman Empire. And in the vision, a question is asked. Look at verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come. And here's the question. Who is able to stand? Who is able to stand when God's judgment comes upon the earth? And the answer is what? No one can stand. So chapter 7 opens with this judgment about to be poured out on the earth. The four angels come with the judgment right in their hands, all symbolic, ready to judge the earth. When a fifth angel steps forth and says, Wait a second! Wait a second. God's servants have to be protected from the judgment that's about to be poured out on the earth. That has to happen first. So it goes on to say that they have to be sealed. We have to seal the servants of our God on their foreheads. 
Now, guess what? <clears throat> Literally on their forehead? See, well, here's what happens when you start taking Revelation literally. You say, and everybody receives the mark of the beast who are not Christians. And that, and on their foreheads are written the number what? Six, six, six. And guess what? You have pictures of people with six, six, six on their head. And you think it's literal. It's not literal language. This is symbolic language. What's the seal that they get? All kinds of theories. But uh, that's missing the point. What's the point of this? Verse 3, that they're going to be sealed. What's the point? What's he trying to get across? That when judgment falls, what? Some people will be protected. That's the point. All you're doing is hunting for the point. Okay? Judgment's coming. Some people will be spared the judgment. Now look at verse 4. And I heard the number. Of those who were sealed, 144,000 of the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Okay, now he's going to tell us who was sealed. Now watch this. You see that word in verse 4? And I heard, you see that? I heard the number. I want you to remember that word heard. Okay? So what word do you have to remember? Heard. Okay, don't forget the word heard. The angel says, no, judgment can't fall until God's servants are protected. We're going to seal them in some way. They'll be identified with God in some way. And so he says, verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed. Of Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Ishakar, Zebulon, Joseph. And of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, literally, only 12,000? <clears> How many tribes are listed here? Well, what does that mean? All of them. And it's 12 times 12 squared. This is a perfect number in a sense. Times 1,000. 144,000. 1,000 which means completion. Fulfillment. And so what we're going to have is a complete group of people here are going to be sealed. Now, in these 12 tribes, two tribes are missing. Two tribes are missing. And one is the tribe of Dan. And some of the Jews thought the Antichrist was going to come out of Dan. And they said, that's why Dan is missing. And another tribe is the tribe of Ephraim. And in their place, you got Levi and you got Manasseh, who wasn't a tribe at all. Manasseh was the son of Joseph. He was a second generation. So, what's going on here? Why are not the original 12 tribes mentioned? Why is there some variation? You know, in the Old Testament, there are 18 lists of tribes. The tribes are mentioned in 18 different lists. And they're all different. Different in order, different in 
In, in other words, in sequence, sometimes one tribe is left out and another is added. It's all kinds of crazy things. <clears throat> but look, the important thing is not the names of the tribes. The important thing is not the names of the tribes. The important thing is the number. Look what he said in verse 4. I heard the what? The number of those who were sealed, 144,000 times. The important thing is the number. It's a complete amount of people that God is going to save from this group. People in Old Testament times were numbered for a purpose. They were numbered in Israel for war, for battle. And uh, what you have here is that these are the faithful remnant of Jews. Old Testament Jews, could be some New Testament Jews as well. But that faithful remnant who refused to bow the knee to Caesar. And these people probably are going to die. Or at least be persecuted. These people are going to be casualties of war. But you know one thing they won't face. They might face persecution from Caesar, but you know one thing they will not experience? They won't experience God's judgment when it falls. They won't be there to be judged like the lost people. Now look at verse 9. And after these things, next right in the next scene, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can number, of all tribes, nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now, what did I ask you to remember? What word was it? Boy, you are really... really Heard. Now look at verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed. I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from the tribes. Okay? But in verse 9, look. Look what it says. But I looked and behold a great multitude which, what? No one could number. I heard the number 144,000. But when I looked, I saw a multitude which could not be numbered. Now, a similar thing happened back in chapter 4. You've been with us. You will remember this very clearly. Remember in chapter 4, the scroll's brought out, and there's a question. Who can open the scroll? And they said, no one can open the scroll. And John cries. But then somebody says, behold, there's one. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's what John heard. Remember what he heard? The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Next verse. But then I looked, and there was the, the Lamb who was slain. What did he hear? Lion. What did he see? Lamb. Now, is Jesus... A lion and a lamb, yes, in a sense he is the lion or the ruler of the tribe of Judah, but he doesn't conquer with force. He conquers by his death. Here's what he heard. A lion! Behold, I look. A lamb. Here's what he hears in verse 4. I heard the number 144,000 from the tribes of Judah. I look. And what did he see? A great multitude which no one could number. 
He heard and he saw heard about Jews, but look what he sees in verse 9. A great multitude, which no one can number, of Jews, no, of all nations. Of the twelve tribes, no, all tribes. Of the Jewish people, no, of all people. Those that speak Hebrew, no, those of all tongues. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Have we ever seen these people before, clothed in white robes? In the book? I think you've seen them, haven't you? Who are those people that John promises will be clothed in white robes? Oh, those in the church. Those that remain faithful. Remember that? The seven churches? He that overcomes will be clothed in white robes. We saw that at least twice. That means that they will have eternal life. Are they Jews only, by the way? No. May they die from persecution? Yes. In fact, you have to remain faithful. And it may cost you your life. It might not cost you your life, but it may cost you your life. Does it include Gentiles as well as Jews? Yes. Scripture says to the Jew first, and then what? To the Gentiles. Was Jesus the lion? Yes. Was he the lamb? Yes. Does John see Jews? Yes. Are there more than Jews? Yes. See? So, when you look at it this way, things start coming together. And they come together when you decide, finally in your mind, you're not going to take these things literally. The moment you try to interpret an apocalyptic piece of literature, literally you've broken every rule of language. Apocalyptic literature is not to be taken literally. It's representative language. So, these are people in white robes. These are the overcomers. What are they doing there in verse 9? Look what they have in their hands. Palm branches. What do that, does that Do they literally have palm branches? Well, in the vision they do, but guess what? If, when they stand before God, are they going to have literal palm branches? But palm branches mean something. In fact, Plutarch, the great philosopher, said that... Uh, at every athletic contest in Greece, the winners were given palm branches. Those palm branches represent victory. Victory. Remember when Jesus came into town? They had these palm branches, and they were saying, Hail King Jesus! You know, overthrow Rome! They were calling him a great conqueror when he came in. Comes in on the horse, on the donkey. So, this is the overcomers. The overcomers. Now, what are they doing? What else are they doing in verse 9? They're waving palm branches. They're doing something else. What else are they doing? They're standing. Does your Bible say they're standing? Any of them standing there? Tribes standing before the throne of God? That's where they are. Has the judgment hit them? No. Look how chapter 6 and verse 17 ends. Chapter 6 and 17. On the great day of his wrath, when it has come, who will be able to stand? And here's the answer right there in verse 9. Chapter 7. Who's standing? The multitude in white robes. The overcomer is standing. Now look at verse 10. 
And they were crying out with a loud voice saying, Deliverance, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And by the way, all Romans said salvation, deliverance comes from Caesar. Caesar's the one who delivers us from our enemies. But these people are not giving their allegiance to Caesar. They're giving their allegiance to Christ, to God and the Lamb. And all the angels were around about the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, they all fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, have we seen a scene like that before? Yeah, we've seen scenes like that before earlier. It's a scene of worshiping God. Those who have overcome him, worshiping God. A very loud lot of group of people here, by the way. And just crying it out. See, verse 10 says, they cried it out with a loud voice. Do you see that? Cried it out with a loud voice. When you realize that you are saved, when you realize that you are going to be delivered, when you realize you're going to stand before God, guess what? You should get loud about it. It's a noisy lot. Now comes a question. Look at verse 13. And then one of the elders answered and said, saying to me, Who are these people? Arrayed in white robes. Where did they come from? So John gives the answer. I said to him, Sir, you know. You know who these are. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. <clears throat> now, what we want to say is, what? This is the great tribulation, the seven-year tribulation at the end of the age, right? But John's writing that the churches, the seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, could it be that? I guess it could be. Did I used to say it was that? Yes, I said it was that. I'm not convinced that that's the right answer. Because the word tribulation here simply means suffering, distress, uh, turmoil, persecution. And those churches in chapters 2 and 3 are starting to go through trials already. And John is telling them about the things that are going to come on the earth very soon. Very soon. And... I believe that these are the churches in John's day who are going to be experiencing persecution. In fact, it says in verse 14, so I would read it like this. These are they that are going through, that have come, well let me read this. These are those who come out of great distress, persecution, tribulation, suffering. Now see the word there, come. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That's a present tense verb. It reads something like this. These are those who are coming out of the tribulation. These are those who, right now, are coming out of suffering. These are those right now who are coming out of distress. Some have already died. But they're the victors. And these are the people that I see standing there worshiping God. So I think that that's if you're going to put it in the context of those original seven churches, don't project this into the future. Will there be tribulation during the tribulation period? There will be, but I don't think this is what this is referring to. 
This is referring to people in those seven churches that are going to experience persecution at the hands of Rome. But they're going to be overcomers, and they come out of that, and they stand before God, and they will not experience His judgment. Only Rome will experience His judgment. So then it says this, And these are those, in verse 14, at the end of verse 14, who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Literally, if you wash your clothes in blood, it will not turn out white, it will turn out what? We're not dealing. We're not dealing with literal. See, this is the problem when you start making things literal. So, what does it mean? This is pulled straight out of Roman culture. There was a cult called the cult of side belly, and if you wanted to join this cult, it was one of the Roman cults worshiping one of the Roman goddesses. To be a full member of that cult, you first of all had to eat. A meal whose, whose flesh had first been dedicated to the goddess Sibella. And then second of all, you had to pledge your allegiance to that goddess by allowing your garments to be dipped in the blood of a sacrificial bull. There was a bull that had been put on a piece of lattice work and killed. And its blood would drain, would be flowing down, and you would get your garments in that blood. And that act of allegiance and allowing the blood of the bull, the sacrificial bull, to drip on your clothes was considered your pledge of allegiance, and you were purified. Purified from the... Corruption of the outside world. Now you were a member of this cult, this group, this secret organization. You were an initiate. And you'd been purified from all the corruption of the world. You were now part of this new group. And what he is saying is that these Christians, have, in a sense, have done the same thing. They have pledged their allegiance to Christ. That's all he's saying. They've pledged their allegiance to Christ. They're full members of Christ. And they have been purified of their sins. Therefore, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. <clears throat> Literally? Will there be an eternal temple? That's what Revelation says, doesn't it? Revelation says there in the New Jerusalem is no temple. God and the Lamb are the light of it. See, so you have to say, what is it saying? It just says, these people are what? Serving God in a holy setting from that point on. And he who sits, in the end of verse 15, on the throne will dwell among them. Literally, will put his tent over them. He will, he will put his tent. He will cover them. He will protect these people. Remember Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have loved to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. Put my wings over you. 
but you wouldn't allow me. Well, guess what? They're not protected, those that are against Christ, and the judgment will hit them. But those that are protected, those who are sealed, basically simply means protected, will be standing when the judgment falls. Then he says this in verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore or thirst anymore. And the sun shall not strike them with any heat. That is a quote straight out of Isaiah 49.10. And the reason is because the Lamb is in their midst, in the midst of the throne. And this Lamb will shepherd them. Never heard of a Lamb being a shepherd. That's a strange looking thing, isn't it? A Lamb will be a shepherd. This Lamb, they'll be protected. There won't be any hunger anymore. No more thirst. Sun will not strike them with heat. What is this talking about? Because when these Christians refused to bow to Caesar, guess what? They were hungry. And they didn't get were given anything to drink. They starved to death. And they were thrown out of their houses. And they were victims of sunstroke. But that's not going to happen anymore. They may have been persecuted by Rome, but God's protecting them. And they're not going to hunger. Because the Lamb who was in the midst of the throne will rule over them, will shepherd them, and He will lead them. Look where He's going to lead them. To living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now this is a quote from Isaiah 25, 10, 8 and 10. Isaiah 25, 8 and 10. And you know what? You turn back to those Isaiah passages. They are descriptions in the Old Testament of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. When the Messiah comes and rules on earth. And yet when we look at this, it looks like the event is taking place in heaven, doesn't it? Doesn't it look like all this is taking place in heaven? But in the Isaiah passage, guess where it's taking place? On earth. So we're always having to navigate and negotiate these scriptures and try to figure out what all these scriptures mean. If we could summarize, we could say six seals have been opened. The first four seals represent the Roman Empire, the horses, and how Rome oppresses people, how Rome conquers people, how Rome kills people, how Rome persecutes people. The fifth seal is open, and he sees martyrs, dead people below an altar, Christians who haven't bent the knee to Caesar, and they've been put to death for their faith. And then the sixth seal is open, chapters 6 and 7, and we see judgment coming. And who will be judged? Everybody who sides with the powers that be. Who will be standing when the judgment falls? Those who have refused to bend the knee, but have given their full allegiance to Christ. And then chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Then he opened the seventh seal. And when he opened the seventh seal, The sight was so unbelievable that there was silence in heaven for about the space in the half hour. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we thank you that we can somehow make sense of this symbolic language. Help us not to do what so many people do. We take things so literally. Lord, we do not interpret scripture literally, we interpret scripture normatively. 
We interpret parables as parables. We interpret prophecy as prophecy. We interpret apocalyptic literature as apocalyptic literature. We interpret irony as irony. We interpret regular, normal prose literally. So Lord, help us to learn these lessons. Help us to take some of these lessons to heart. And for us, Lord, help us to take this lesson to heart that we should remain faithful to you, give our full allegiance to you. And when we do, we are guaranteed up front that we will not face the judgment. The blessings of your kingdom will be ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.